Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right. If you want to go ahead and move back to your seats, welcome everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Good to see you all. Good to see you. We're in a series called A Generous Common Life. Um, We decided to hone in on this passage of Scripture, Galatians 6, 1 through 10, and really, really dig deep and see what it is that the Lord might have in store for us there. And kind of the main crux of Paul's discussion in this letter is learning this almost paradox between the things that are our personal responsibility, the way he puts it is to carry your own load, and what is our communal responsibility? What is it that we hold together? Because sometimes there's things in life um, that are a little too, they're too much for us to hand, handle on our own. And so we've been looking at this uh, passage of Scripture um, in several different translations. And today we're going to be looking at one called the Expanded Bible. I like this one. It's kind of like the Amplified in the sense that it, it, it's trying to really help you understand kind of phrase by phrase what is the deep thing that's happening here. So it's a little bit clunky, um, but that's okay. Um, I'm going to read this, and I want you just to be kind of listening. What are the, the, it's almost like there's different angles. I feel like a lot of times passages of Scripture are like these diamonds that you have to keep kind of turning in the sunlight and kind of exploring it from all these different facets to get the fullest picture. So as we're going through these different translations of Scripture, that's what we're really trying to do, is to see it from all of these different angles so that we get uh, the full beauty of what it is that Paul's writing to us. So this is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brothers and sisters, if someone in your group, i.e. a person, any people in here? All right, look at that. Uh, Does something wrong or is overcome by some transgression or sin, or is discovered, caught in some transgression or sin, you who are gentle should go to that person and gently make them right again. Restore them gently with a gentle spirit. But be careful because you might, or so that you won't be tempted to sin too. By helping each other with your troubles, bearing each other's burdens, you truly obey or accomplish, fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's important or something, When he's really not, he's only fooling, deceiving, deluding himself. Each person should judge, examine, test. I feel like I actually talk about like this in real life. So it's, I did write, yeah. It is very clunky, um, just like my sermons. In his own actions or achievements work and not compare himself with others. Then he can be proud for what he himself has done. Each person must be responsible for himself or will carry their own load. Anyone who is learning the teaching of God, be instructed in the word, should care all good things, share all the good things he has with his teacher. Do not be fooled, deceived, or mistaken. You cannot cheat, mock, make a fool of God. People harvest only what they plant, reap what they sow. If they plant to satisfy, or in the field of, into, to, their sinful selves, sinful nature, flesh, their sinful selves will bring them ruin. They will reap destruction from the flesh. But, If they plant to please, or in the field of, into, to the Spirit, they will receive, reap, harvest, eternal life from the Spirit. We must not become tired or discouraged of doing good. When we will receive our harvest of eternal life at the right or in due time, we do not give up. 
Therefore, so then, when we have the opportunity to help, do good to anyone, we should do it. But we should give special attention, especially to those who are in the family household of believers. Um, Jenna, maybe next week you can just read from like the Jesus storybook or something. Give us the children's version. Um, but I hope that you see, you know, the, there are passages that require a lot of exposition, that it needs to be brought out for us so we can really see the fullness of what Paul is trying to capture here. And we've been switching um, in these past couple weeks from really examining what are our personal loads, what is my responsibility to carry, and as we said very often that immaturity is when we blame other people for the things that are rightly ours to carry, but where we abdicate responsibility for the things that are supposed to be ours, um, or our communal responsibility. you know, our communal responsibility, and we kind of pass that off to somebody else. And maturity is really learning what is actually mine. What am I responsible for when it comes to my own load? But what am I responsible for in my obligation to the people uh, who God has bound me to in this thing called the church? Uh, So today, we're going to be talking about marriage and singleness. And everybody clenched. Uh, this one came with great trepidation for me. So last week, we, you know, we kind of finished out praying through different arenas of our church. And um, I felt like we were to pray for our children, and then I felt like we were to pray for marrieds, and then I felt like the Lord was like, don't forget the single people. And I was like, yes, of course, single people matter, and they're important, and they're real full human beings. It's crazy. Uh, so we prayed for it, and then I had this whole thing planned for how we're going to talk about friendship today, and it was going to be a nice compliment to Jenna's sermon next week. And then I felt like the Lord was like, I want you to talk about marriage and singleness. And I said, Why me, Lord? Um, It's a minefield. Talking about marriage and singleness is a minefield, and this is why. Because it's potentially the closest thing uh, that you can attach to your core identity, right? That's why so many of you, you're already clenched, and you're already getting dry in your mouth, because it's 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 attaching to something very, 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 very close to your identity, And so as we're going through this today, what I want to do is to paint a large kind of theological vision of both marriage and singleness. And it's going to stir up a lot of shame for some of you. It's going to stir up a lot of fear and anxiety. It's going to stir up for some of you uh, a sense of regret for things that have happened in the past, anxiety for the future. Um, But I need you to remember that God is always for you, right? Um, and I remember uh, Greg Boyd, who's a pastor and a theologian that I respect tremendously. He said, God's expectations for us are a lot higher than we're comfortable with, but God is also far more accommodating than many of us would be comfortable with as well. And so what we're doing is we're painting an highest ideal that literally none of us in this room have achieved. And that's where the shame comes from. But shame has power over us when it keeps us small, where either we have this challenge to lower our expectations of what God has in store for us as human beings, um, where we make things small and ordinary and mundane, and we rip the sacredness out of marriage, and we rip the sacredness out of singleness, um, or we're constantly overperforming to try to meet these unreal expectations. But we have to remember that God walks with us through these feelings. We don't run away from feelings of shame or guilt or regret. We actually pass through them with the Holy Spirit, that God is constantly offering us forgiveness and restoration. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump right into this. And so, Heavenly Father, we do testify that you are here, and that you are with us, and that you are for us. Um, You're not against any of us, but Lord, you are um, extraordinarily accommodating 
as we read the stories of our ancestors in the Bible, as we consider the whole scope of human history, we see how much you work in the midst of our confusion or shame and our regret to continue to bring about goodness. Um, and Lord, I know that these two arenas of life, these two vocations that you've called us to um, carry with them a lot of fear uh, because we can so easily find our whole identity in these things. But Lord, we, we also expect that you are here to liberate us, um, to deliver us from idolatry, uh, and to welcome us into new possibilities um, that might just save us. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm excited to t speak about this in some respect because as Jenna said, my mom and my aunt are both here. My mom's celebrating 40 years of marriage to my dad on January 1st, which is amazing. Um, in a completely unrelated note, uh, my father was completely gray by the time he was my age, and I don't think it was my fault. Um, so just talking about marriage and singleness, even right there, you've got to compare contrast between my dad's hair color and my hair color at 38. Um, but this is kind of my main thesis. Comparison is the thief of joy. So we've darted around this a lot in this passage. This seems to be very, very important to Paul when he's maneuvering this difference between um, what is mine to carry and what do we hold together. And he says, don't compare yourself to other people. Um, now, we do this all the time as we're going to be looking at today because of some of the things that have been woven into our culture. But I think the number one thing that causes us unnecessary strife in marriage or singleness is when we compare ourselves to other people, whether it's people that are in the same situation in life as us or when it's people that are on the other side of the fence, right? As single people, we look at married people and we say, well, I'm not there. I'm not in that station in life, so I must be doing something wrong. Or as married people, we look at single people and be like, wow, it'd be really nice just to be able to do whatever you want, right? And that's the, the number one way that I would say the enemy is going to rob you of joy in life. And what is joy? Joy is a deep contentment with the position that you have in life and what God has offered you in this moment. So the challenge today is can you cherish the season of life that you're in and respond to Jesus' invitation for an abundant life? So I'm not going to today give you tips on how to be married. I am grossly underqualified for that. Um, or on being single, I'm also grossly underqualified to do that. But I want to paint a portrait of what the invitation here is. Uh, the only thing I'd say to married couples is blah, 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 communication, blah, blah, blah. That seems to be the, sol like that, that solves everything is communication. Uh, and for singles uh, with dating apps, um, men holding large fish um, is sort of the social equivalent of women having way too many pictures of them at Disney World with, with ears on, okay? I know what you're trying to communicate, both sides. I know what you're trying to say about yourself. You're just over-communicating it. Dude, we get it. You can provide. That's awesome. <laughs> Honey, I get it. You are fun. I, it's great. Just give me a little bit more, okay? So, the problem that a lot of us have is because romanticism has been so ingrained into our culture um, that we find ourselves uh, kind of missing the forest for the trees and what these things are. Um, and so the wonderful uh, pessimist philosopher Alain de Baton has done a lot of work around this idea of love, and he's really identified several things that the romantics taught us. So this is kind of 
um, you know, we have the Enlightenment era. We begin to move away from organized religion. And one of the things that happened in the Enlightenment was they said, we don't really like this picture that Christians have painted that's rather pessimistic that says people are broken and they do this thing called sin um, and they, people hurt other people. We prefer this idea that everybody is angelic and inherently good and lovely. And they began to write novels out of that place. And the, the romantics started to fill the gap of what it means to be a human being in a way that religion had done uh, not particularly well necessarily up until that point in life. But there were several lies that these romantics told us um, through their novels, uh, through their music, and then how that has kind of trans. It transpired from the 17th century until today. So these are a few of the lies that the romantics taught us. Number one, you have a soulmate, and that soulmate will banish loneliness. Okay, here's a question. Uh, married people, raise your hand if you are lonely sometimes. Okay, single people, raise your hand if you're lonely. All right, so the number one lie is that you have a soulmate, and that soulmate is going to banish loneliness. And many of you will testify, especially many of you married people, the most lonely you will ever feel in your entire life is because you're intimately known by someone else, right? Because you roll over and there's a person next to you and you feel disconnect. Number two, you're going to find this soulmate by instinct. There's a special feeling. You're going to be on a train uh, going through Europe. And they were always on trains, these romantics, because uh, they didn't have jobs. And you're going to catch uh, kind of like uh, a profile. You're going to see an ankle. And you just know that there's a special feeling that you have that that person is your soulmate. And then you're kind of operating for that meet cute where you bump into each other on the train. Papers go everywhere. You pick them up. You look at each other. And you're like, oh, my God, there's my soulmate. Uh, number three, you will live happily ever after. Um, that's a very common one in romanticism. Uh, most romantic uh, writers believed in this because they all contracted tu tuberculosis. So romance didn't last very long. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't get into their 50s and 60s. Uh, number four, sex is the summit of love. Now you see this one a lot in our modern era, in, in our movies, in our novels, in our television shows, that there's a tension, you found that special someone, instinct is flying high, and then eventually they consummate their love through sex, and now they're in a beautiful romantic relationship. So we see that happening a lot. Uh, number five, for the romantics, there's no mention of laundry. And I don't mean emotional laundry, I mean actual laundry. Uh, number one, they were all rich, so they had somebody else to do their laundry, so they didn't have to incorporate that into their vision of love. Uh, but number two, nobody really wants to read about going out and choosing towels and making sure that the lawn is mowed. So the romantic vision of love didn't really contain any of that stuff. And so a lot of us felt stuck because we've been given this beautiful grand vision of love, but nobody told us who's supposed to do the laundry. Uh, number six, um, there's no need to talk in love. To truly be known, it means that you don't have to explain yourself. And this is problematic uh, for several reasons. But number one, if you truly loved me, you would be able to read my mind. Even though I don't know what's going on in my own brain, you should just know. And so the romantics taught us the highest challenge for love is I don't have to explain myself anymore to you. Now, it is beautiful when you're with somebody and you've been working on your relationship that there's kind of an intuitive knowledge of how the other person operates, but that is an achievement of love. That is not something that you just begin with, and that's why there's an epidemic of sulking in our culture. 
because we insist that the people who truly love us should just know what we're thinking and feeling even though we don't. And then number seven, criticism and love are diametrically opposed. So to love me is just to affirm me. And if you offer me any critique, you don't truly love me, which is tragic. So these are the lies that the romantics have taught us. And it's so woven. You know, we think about, oh, these 17th century poets and writers or whatever. They have nothing to do with 21st century. We're obviously so much more elevated than that. But just turn on your TV and watch literally anything that we create. And you see these lies perpetuated. It is so woven into us that we cannot see um, that it is an intimate part of our understanding of love and that it has mostly ruined us for it. The beauty of romanticism is that it gave us this higher view of love and of marriage because prior to the romantic era, you married because they had a goat and you didn't. Um, or two kingdoms were going to come together. Like there was always some sort of social arrangement, which is why we have to be careful when we read about marriage in the Bible because they didn't marry for love, not the way that we do. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think romanticism gave us this grander vision of love that potentially does get us closer to understanding what God is like, but it never gave us the steps on how to get there. So how do we rescue ourselves from romanticism in a way that redeems both marriage and singleness? So I'm going to re- talk about marriage, and then I'm going to talk about singleness. Um, marriage is a living symbol of the relationship between Christ and his church. What is marriage for? That. That's what marriage is for, okay? As Christians, this is what we believe. If you're not a Christian, fill in the gap. You know, you you can decide what it is. But for Christians, this is what it is. It's a living symbol. It's two people coming together to form one flesh so that we have in our midst a symbol. This is what it means for Christ to love us. This is why I'm very against the idea of elopement, I think, Again, if you did it, no shame. I don't think it's a very good idea because marriage is something that happens in the midst of community because we come around you to say, we so desperately need a vision of Christ and his church that we need you to do this in our presence, and then we're going to hold you accountable to follow through on the thing that you're agreeing to that you don't know what you're doing. Eli and Cassidy, right? You guys, you don't know what you're about to do. But that's fine. We're all here to hold you accountable to that because criticism and love are not diametrically opposed. <laughs> Again, the philosopher Alain de Botton, he's absolutely wonderful. He's a, uh, he's a pessimist philosopher. He's a secular Jew, but he has a tremendously high vision uh, for Christian love. And he said, marriage is a terrible thing to do to someone that you claim to love. <laughs> because it bumps up against all of these romantic notions that we have. Um, and the problem with the cult of romanticism is that it teaches us that we're supposed to be authentic or true to our feelings. That's the way you maneuver through the world. What you feel, and we talked about this several weeks ago, what you feel is the truest, realest thing. And so you see that person, you have that special feeling, they're your soulmate, you agree to be with them, and you you feel your feelings alongside of them until you no longer feel those feelings. And then you're just kind of a victim of how you feel or how they're making you feel or whatever. And all these feelings are flying around and that's why relationships break down. Problem is, if you want to be in a loving relationship, you cannot be authentic to your feelings. You can't be true to your feelings. Because if you were true to your feelings, you're just going to continue to perpetually hurt other people. 
And the vision of love that we have in the Judeo-Christian household is actually that you pull yourself back, that you actually create space for somebody else to thrive, which means that you cannot be all the time authentic in the way that you think it means to be authentic. It's about acquiescence. It's about this, what we're going to see in a moment, just this healthy vision of submission to pull back and to create space for somebody else to enter into that. Because love is not something that we spontaneously feel. Love is a skill that we develop over time. In the same way that we do not begin relationships with compatibility. We talk about this all the time, right? It's just in casual conversation. Say, oh, well, we're not compatible in this, that, and the other way. And so we're looking for somebody, and it's usually our very surfacey things. We're looking for these surface interests that we have that will sustain us for a lifetime. And that doesn't work. Compatibility is not the starting point of a healthy relationship. It is the thing that you are working towards, hopefully with a lot of humor and grace. And that's where we find in the Christian household this vision of covenant. Because the fastest way to, to, to break any kind of relationship, really, but especially a romantic one, is when we move from a romantic vision where none of these things that we were promised are being given to us, and then we convert our marriage into a contract. And a contract is uh, an agreement between two parties. Uh, Father John Misty says to have a contractual obligation to a roommate. That's what marriage could be. And it's to say, I'm going to give you these services, and you're going to give me those services. And whenever you break the contract, then we nullify it, and we just go our separate way. It's kind of two autonomous people uh, milling about. But in the Christian household, we have this vision of covenant. And covenant, as I've said before, is kind of us saying, I'm choosing not to choose anymore. And we see this covenant between God and Israel over and over and over again. That God says, I'm not going anywhere. Like, you can break this supposed contract hundreds and thousands of times, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm choosing not to choose anybody else. Like, for God, God doesn't look at us and then go, ah, earthlings, they're fine, but ew, the Venusians, they're kind of cute. You know, like, he's, he is, like, so dedicated to us. He's focused on us because covenant helps us to shed our ego compulsions. When we're in this kind of contractual vision of love, you give me these services, I give you these services, there's nothing in us that's being challenged for us to shed our ego because we're continuing to live out of that that ego place to say, here's what I deserve, here's what you're supposed to give me, here's what I'm supposed to give you, and there's a lot of obligatory language in that. But to be covenantally bound to someone, to say, I'm choosing to no longer choose, is to consistently have someone challenging all of your egotistical uh, mindsets. Amen? Can I get a testify from any of the married people? Like, that's, I think that's what Baton says when he says it's a very cruel thing to do to someone that you claim to love, is to marry them. Because now it's this mirror image thing where all of your grossest, dirtiest things that you would rather not see about yourself is being reflected back to you in another person that's not going anywhere. But it may also be your salvation. And it's your salvation from your ego mindset of thinking that you are this perfectly wonderful person and everybody can get along with you and you've got it all together. Go ahead and get married and see how long that lasts. We see this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is a passage of scripture we've looked at several times. Um, And I said it's one of the most dangerous passages in Scripture because it's grossly misinterpreted, especially Paul's attitude towards women. And it's one that's been used to subjugate women for a long time. This is Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, and then 21 to 33. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering 
and a sacrifice to God. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. Okay, so number one, before we go any farther, many of you, ladies, it starts in verse 22, right? That's what you've been taught. Wives, submit to your husbands. We get this line here, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. And a passage we're going to be looking at in a moment in Corinthians, Paul talks about this idea of like you, you belong to your spouse. So it's, he's talking about sex in particular, but he's saying like don't withhold. And a lot of times what I see in contractual relationships is where sex is weaponized. And it's like I'm not going to give you sex until you give me this thing, Right? like until you show up for me in these certain ways. And it's like sex is being used as, an, as a bargaining chip. But Paul's implication in that passage is like, no, you belong to your spouse. And he says, wives, you belong to your husbands. And that's one of those verses that gets plucked out and misappropriated. Because um, he, he goes on to say, husbands, you belong to your wives. And this is very important too. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what Paul is doing is he's taking these household um, like it was throughout the Roman Empire in the Jewish culture, there were three household rules: wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents, and slaves uh, submit to your masters. And it was like they had this hierarchical vision of power and authority. Beep beep beep. You keep that in order. That's going to be what keeps society intact. And what Paul does is that he takes those three uh, ideas, these household rules, and he plays with them. He manipulates them, and it's not. That fact that he's saying that law, it's everything he puts around it that subverts our understanding of what things say. He takes power structures of the world, he flips them upside down to bring them into the kingdom of Christ, and we see this dramatic reimagining of what power actually looks like. So he goes on, wives, submit to your husbands for as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So rather than there being this perpetuation of these power dynamics or what you maybe have heard of like a complementarian vision of marriage in some Christian households, we see an actually an egalitarian view. He says, no, 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 we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ Jesus. And this whole passage ends, he says, God shows no favoritism. So it's not like God prefers men to women. It's actually a bastardization of the scriptural narrative where we're importing these ideas from the pagan world into our Christianity. But that we live according to this upside down power dynamic, that the way in which we love, the way in which we show up for one another is patterned after Christ, not after these kind of militaristic power dynamics that we have. And I think the, 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 the preciousness of marriage in the Christian worldview is that, that that only works if both parties mutually submit. 
What happens if one person submits and the other doesn't? You get this kind of inverted power dynamic and you start to replicate what you see in the world. And that's where we see abuse and neglect and control, uh, maliciousness, all of these, 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 these horrible ideas happen when we're out of sync in our power. But to hold that place where it's power with, not power over, is the kind of power that we're called to have in marriage through Christ. And the beauty of that vision is then you now have a front row seat to the transformation of the person that you have been bound to as they become more Christ-like day by day, as they shed their ego compulsions because you continually hold a mirror to them and they begin to see themselves through somebody else's eyes. And that person does that for you. That is the vision of Christianity, is that we are committing this covenantal commitment to see you become more like Christ over time. And I think it's important that we have that vision of where we're headed. I think, you know, a lot of research will say the number one uh, things that ruin marriage are money or sex or whatever. I think that those are symptoms of a far deeper problem that in marriage we don't know where it is that we're headed. Um, That marriage is a thing that we've achieved and now we're just kind of hitting this plateau and we don't know where we're going from here. And I think that that's what Paul challenges a lot when he writes about marriage. So we see similarly... In uh, 2 Corinthians 6, which is that passage that I mentioned that's very, very, very dense and has all sorts of things that we could be talking about, um, but we're not because we only have so much time, he says this, uh, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what does fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with him and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul speaks very harshly a lot of times in his passages, and many of you know that. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily apologize for how harsh he is, although I wouldn't have said it that way, but I'm not Paul. Um, What is he saying here when he says, do not be unequally yoked? I've sat with a lot of you, and we've talked through this, and there's implications that you've picked up, um, perhaps from your church of origin or you're growing up, that means you have to marry someone that's of the spiritual awesomeness that you are in order for this thing to work. Any of you, like, you need to, like, you know, you got to, you eat that mushroom, you blow up in a large Mario, and then you're going to find your spouse or whatever. Um, and that's why there's a, way more women in this church than there are men, which is true in every church uh, in the modern world. Um, I wasn't, I guess I wasn't going to say this, but I'll just say this very briefly. Uh, the, the number one worst thing about patriarchy is its subjugation of women. The number two worst thing is, is the pacific, pacification of men. So toxic masculinity really only belongs to a relatively rare group of men, and then there's a whole large group of men that are very, very passive and are not particularly concerned about spiritual growth or emotional growth or any of these things, and ladies, I'm so sorry. That's why we're the kind of national average, 60% women, 40% men. Um, So what does he mean by unequally yoked? Paul does not mean find somebody who is of equal maturity with you. Because guess what? That person doesn't exist. You're this whole weird, wonderful ball of maturity and all these different levels, and everybody else is the same. It, this is what, in, in, in Paul and Jesus' day, 
when you were plowing a field, you had two oxen. You had an older oxen who's bigger, well-trained, and a younger oxen who's kind of smaller, kind of learning the ropes, and they would be yoked together, right? It's this big piece of wood that kind of goes over their shoulders. And the trick was to have these two oxen move in the same direction together where the younger oxen is learning from the older oxen how to do it. Because if the older oxen goes ahead and pulls ahead, they're going to snap the neck of the younger oxen. And so what you're doing is and when, you're, when they're equally yoked, it's not having two oxen that are the same stage in life. It's about them moving in the same direction and constantly being sensitive to the other to make sure that they move ahead together. And that's what it really means to, like, unequally yoked. And he says, don't be unequally yoked is you have to be aware. Are you moving in the same direction together? Not are you at the same level of awesomeness in your spiritual awareness or your emotional awareness or whatever, but do you have an agreement that you're moving along the path together? Um, there are, you know, groups, uh, couples in this in this church that I've done premarital with, and we've talked about this. Like, where are the places in this relationship where you lead, where you have more of an understanding and awareness, and where are the places in, in your life? And can you maneuver those things that each person has something they bring to the table? They have a certain amount of authority that they're leading together. I, I'm kind of wary of any kind of unilateral authority structure within marriage that just constantly deviates to the husband. Um, but I think when it's not talked about a lot of times is that it unilaterally deviates to the wife, and I don't think that that's any healthier either. But it's just recognizing, are we moving together in the same direction? Marriage is not about just staring to each other's eyes for eternity. That sounds nice, right? Like happily ever after, like, like yeah, let's do that. Let's just like hang out in bed all day. Um, because again, sex is the summit of love. Um, it's, it's about... Do we have common vision of where it is that we're headed? And I think if you were to ask Paul to explain what he means here, and he'd probably soften a little bit because he sees you and you're like, oh, he's a, you're a person. Sorry, I just wrote this letter. He'd probably say something along those lines. Like, are you moving in the same direction? And that's the vision. And again, he's incredibly accommodating. He has in this other passage in Corinthians, he says, when one person in a marriage is a believer and one's a not, like that person is sanctified and the children are made holy. And there's, he, he recognizes God as incredibly accommodating. He's like, at the get-go, when you're making co- commitment to somebody, are you recognizing what you're called to? One of the things that I've come to often as I've talked to some of you about relationships is which way are you willing to suffer? Because relationships are suffering, amen? Right? It's just what kind of suffering do you want to accommodate in your life? Now, this is not very romantic, I know. But I'm being honest with you because I love you. And I think that when we choose to be unequally yoked, when we don't have a common vision of where we're headed together, there's a, just, there's a very special form of suffering that you are signing up for that you at least need to own if you're going to make that decision. And if you are you have common vision for your marriage where you're headed even in a dating relationship, there's a very particular suffering in that kind of relationship that you just need to own. So that's all I'll say about marriage. You're welcome. (laughs) Let's move about singleness. Let's talk about singleness um, because it's something I have slightly more experience with uh, than marriage. We all, we all uncomfortable yet? Are we all like, this is horrible. We could all close our eyes and it's like, just like if you need to leave, like we won't, you know what I mean? We could do that. We'll just close our eyes, just go ahead and leave, and then we'll just continue on, but no. See, you're suffering right now. That's good. This is holy. You're being sanctified. 
So how do we talk about singleness? Um, because I think it's something that's not talked about enough, or it's talked about in a like, oh, oh, you're single. God has somebody out there for you, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm going to destroy all of that. We're going to rebuild something good. Number one, perhaps the most obvious thing that doesn't get talked about a lot, the singleness of Jesus affirms that each of us are whole people already, worthy of love, okay? Um, I bump into this a lot, especially as a single pastor. They're like, oh, when are you going to increase your territory? Are you praying that prayer of Jabez? That's a reference from like 15 years ago for some of you. Um, there is this idea in ministry that when you're really serious, you'll get married. Um, and again, in that kind of top-down power authority structure, you can only minister to the people that are less significant than you, which is why women are allowed to do kids' ministry and, and minister to people with handicaps, right, that, in that kind of power structure. Um, my, my dad told me, he was talking to a Roman Catholic priest one time, my dad's a pastor, and he said, how can you do weddings when you're not even married? And he said, how can you do funerals when you're not even dead? <laughs> you know? Um, but we have this idea that, like, single ministers, or we have two elders that are single, like, somehow they're, they're second-tier citizens, um, they're second-class, or they're not particularly welcome, so I see a lot of church structures where, like, um, they don't have any single presence in leadership. And I think that's tragic because it reinforces a couple horrible lies. But we recognize Jesus was single. Unless you believe Dan Brown. Jesus was single um, and seemed to be okay with that. And Paul was single. Now, we don't know if Paul was always single, if Paul is a widow, or if Paul perhaps was divorced, um, if his wife uh, did not follow him into Christianity. We're not sure. But both of them were single. And it's Greek tradition, Greek philosophy, not Christianity, that, that posits that you are only half a person until you find your other half, okay? That is Greek philosophy, that is not Judaism, that is not Christianity. And I think that's a horrible and tragic lie because the shame that that brings on you as a single person to say, oh, I'm only a half a person looking for my other half, which is great when you find somebody, and it's a terrible tragedy when you don't. And I think the fact that Jesus lived his whole life single and that Paul celebrated singleness means to say, no, you are already a whole person worthy of love. But even in Jewish tradition at the time of Jesus and Paul, there were a lot of rabbis that would say that not getting married was a sin uh, because you're not furthering the legacy. You're not carrying on the family name. Again, remember, marriage was much more about social covenant than it was about love. So for Jesus and Paul both to preach about, in a flattering way, singleness was completely um, unprecedented at the time. It rocked um, the ancient Near East. And indeed, during the first 1,500 years of the church, um, there was a preference for people who were single. So the single people would sit in the front and the married people would sit in the back. And then in the Reformation, it kind of flipped, and the married people sat in the front, and the single people sat in the back. So I'm hoping that we're, like, bucking 2,000 years of Christian tradition by having y'all mixed in this place. But unfortunately, much of Christian teaching has reinforced these two things. Number one, you're only half a person. Uh, and number two, God has somebody out there for you, this kind of fatalistic idea. Someday my prince will come, that kind of vision, uh, of like that romantic vision of love. Um, I do not believe that's true. 
and maybe that, that's maybe the biggest bummer of all to some of you who are single, I do not believe that God has someone out there for you. I do not believe in the one. I do not believe that God determined somebody before you were born, and eventually there's going to be this meet cute on a train in Europe, and then that's your person. Um, and I think the problem with these, these two lies, you're only half a person until you find a person, and God already has somebody in mind for you. Number one, it produces an extraordinary amount of shame when you're a single person, and number two, it produces inaction, because all you're supposed to do is sit around and twiddle your thumbs and wait for the sky to part, and then all of a sudden, God is going to show you your person. Um, and that's horribly uh, untrue. So what does Paul say about um, singles? In 1 Corinthians 7, um, we find this very long passage, again, where he's talking a lot about um, married life and singleness. And just a couple quick passages from here that I want to identify. The first is in verse 7. He says, I wish all of you were as I am, single. Um, But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So even there, Paul's saying, Singleness is a gift. And all of you are going, uh-uh, no, it's not. Singleness is a gift. Again, if we want a heavenly perspective of these things, singleness is a gift. Marriage is a gift. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Um, so why does Paul think you can get married? You should get married. If you can't keep in your pants, go ahead, get married. There's your romantic happily ever after. Uh, And he continues on, and we kind of scroll through to verse 32. Um, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world and how she can please her husband. I'm not saying this or I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided attention to the Lord. So Paul is affirming that both marriage and singleness are good gifts, but he's saying there's a way in which you steward that that doesn't seek to do away with suffering, but it integrates the suffering that comes along with it. Because what Paul's really saying is that there's worry either way. Like, if you're going to be married, there's a very particular set of worries that you're going to have. And if you're unmarried, there's a very particular set of worries. But can you own that? And he's saying, listen, there's fruit to your life either way. But can you see it? Do you have a vision for what that abundant life that you're called to through Jesus looks like? So you cannot wait for your life to begin when you meet someone. You have the opportunity now to craft a full life in which you learn to love God, love others, and love yourself. I think a lot of us, because of these lies, these romantic lies that have been kind of wedded to Christian faith, have told us that you just have to wait. And then when you meet somebody and you get married, then your life will begin. Then your life will start. And a lot of us are sitting around waiting for that thing to happen. Or we um, utilize an extraordinary amount of energy fretting about the fact that we're single and that we don't have a person yet and we haven't found them. And we're scrambling around in order to do whatever we can do to find that person. Um, 
as a single person, you're not meant to just fill up your time with just more work. Just because you're like more available doesn't mean that you devote yourself more to work and service. That's not abundant life. You have to really sit with Jesus and say, what does it mean to live an abundant and a full life? And what it is is it's a chance to learn how to love yourself. It's a chance to learn how to love God, and it's a chance to learn how to love other people. That's what singleness affords us. And I think a lot of us who are single, we have failed relationships because we still believe those lies that we need someone to make us complete, which is a form of codependency. Um, Or we blow up relationships because we're so wedded to those romantic notions that we cannot uh, maneuver towards compatibility. We cannot learn love as a skill. Or some of us who are single, we just settle uh, for a warm body to say it's better to have a warm body next to me, someone that I'm not particularly interested in or that doesn't make me a better person or make me more Christ-like than it is to be single. And I think that that's the real tragedy when we are offered this opportunity to really learn how to love ourselves well, to learn how to love God well, and to stop making some of those mistakes that we've made in past relationships or that we see in the relationships around us, people who entered into marriage without that understanding of who they are, of who the other person is, and having the skills to maneuver those conversations. And so I think it's really important for you as a single person uh, to grieve if you have a desire to be married. It's really important that you grieve that. Um, I remember years ago having to work through this in my own life to say, if for some reason I I don't get married, and you say, oh, Ryan, but you're so handsome, and you're hilarious, and you're humble, and you're the dream guy, and I say, I know. Um, But I had to recognize at one point, I'm like, if I never get married, can I look back at my life and be like, it was pretty freaking awesome life regardless. It was full. And it wasn't full with like, I like travel as much as the next person, but that's not a full life. You know what I mean? Like, I like hobbies as much as the next person, but that's, having hobbies is not a full life. A full life is like, did I love as best I could? Did I love other people as best I could? Did I love myself as best I could? Did I love God as best I could? And I had to start converting this mentality that I had to say, even if I never get married, I still want to live a life an abundant life offered to me by Jesus to say, this is worth it. So there's a difference between, I think, grieving and we might say, like, like holding on to that thing as an identity and maybe commiserating with other single people, where what we're doing is we're actually perpetuating the idea in our pain that we're not a whole person until we meet somebody and that God does have somebody out there. Maybe it's our fault that we haven't found them. But also, do you have gratitude for where you're at today as a single person, as a married person? Do you have gratitude for what what God affords you in this season in your life? Because I think if we can't be fully present in the life that we have now, we're going to miss the next season. We're going to miss the thing that God has for us down the road because we were too busy today fretting that we're not like the people that are on the other side of the fence. And we poison marriages because we are jealous of single people. And we poison singleness because we're jealous of married people. And it just goes around and around. Can you be fully invested in your life where you are today? Say, I'm going to live this abundance. The highs will be higher. The lows will be lower because it all matters. It all means something.
So singles, practice real, healthy self-care. Invest in community. Practice hospitality. Have people over to your house as often as you can. Learn how to become a really good cook. Take care of other people's children. Invest in your friendships. Carve out that space. Make it non-negotiable that you're, because you can't, you can't, like married people can almost take for granted that there's someone at home for them. Like as singles, we can't do that. We have to consciously make the decision to, to put ourselves around good people. So I want to close out with this passage uh, or this, this quote from uh, Uncle Pete Scazzaro, who wrote the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course and then the Relationships course that I'm getting ready to do in a couple weeks. He says, Married couples bear witness to the depth of Christ's love. Singles bear witness to the breadth of Christ's love. I love that. That married people, it's about that covenantal relationship focused on one person choosing not to choose and saying, how deep is the love of Christ when it comes to advocacy and forgiveness and maneuvering hard things? But for singles, it's that breadth of Christ's love. How do we learn to love all who come across our path? Both marrieds and singles point to and reveal Christ's love, but in different ways. Both need to learn from one another about these different aspects of Christ's love. Because ultimately, our identity is not in being married or single. If you make your identity about being a married person, if you introduce yourself to people, they're like, oh, I'm so-and-so's husband or wife or whatever. Like, if you put your identity in marriage, you will choke the life out of the gift that you've been given. Uh, but if you put your identity in being a single person, you will choke the life out of the season that God has you in. And you will resent it. And you will resent God. So the challenge to you today is whatever season you're in, do you choose abundance now? One word I've been thinking about a lot recently is integrity, probably because I need some. But can you steward this season in your life with integrity and with purpose? Do you have that vision to which God has called you to that you will not relent on, that you're not going to compromise on? And what are the core questions as I've been sharing all this? <coughs> Excuse me. What are the core questions that you need to bring before the Lord? The, the values that you hold are the questions that are kind of being pricked at by shame and regret or avoidance when we talk about marriage and singleness. What are the things, is there an invitation there that God uh, is offering you for things that he wants to work on today? Does he want to redeem singleness? Does he want to redeem marriage? Um, does he want you to enter into a relationship? Does he want you to relieve a relationship? Like there, we have to bring these things before the Lord to say, God, I need some sort of affirmation of where I'm at today so that I can embrace this season and then move forward with integrity. So just in case we couldn't make things more awkward, we're gonna pray for each other. And this is the way we're going to do it. Um, we're going to begin. I'm going to invite, like, married people uh, to, like, let's, let's all stand up. We'll do it this way. Everybody stand up. And I'm going to ask uh, married and engaged people uh, to raise their hand. Uh, and then single folks, you're going to pray for them. If you're close to them, you can lay a hand on them. If you're not close to them, no worries. Um, and you're just going to pray. To, and your prayer is going to be surrounding that idea, like, I need, I need this vision of Christ and his church. I need you <coughs> to show me what Jesus is like. 
And so singles, we're gonna pray for marrieds, and then we're gonna flip it, and I'll ask the singles to raise their hands. And married people, you're going to pray over them. And I really want you to focus on breaking a lot of those lies uh, that single people can be entrapped under um, that keep us lamenting where we're at today as we look for something else. So I'm, I'll lead a prayer, and I'm gonna give you space, and then we'll tr- transition to worship. Um, so Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Um, these two vocations that you give us that are both affirmed and blessed as gifts. And we don't always believe that. Sometimes we see singleness as a curse. Sometimes we see marriage as a curse. And Lord, it's understandable because we've experienced brokenness in relationship. We've experienced horrible disappointment and, and, and divorce and separation um, and all these things that kind of cloud our view of, of what marriage is for or what singleness is for. But Lord, we still need that heavenly vision from you so that we can lift our heads above the chaos of human life to see what you've called us to and to receive that extraordinary grace that you give us that accommodates where we're at in life today and helps us to move forward. And so, Lord, right now I pray through the lips of the single people in this room, would you give us words of blessing and grace uh, to lay hands upon and to pray goodness over the married couples in our midst because we need them to be this living symbol of Christ and his church. So singles, I want you to pray aloud over uh, engaged and married couples. And so now we turn it the other way around, and marrieds are going to pray for singles. I want you to pray wholeness. I want you to pray joy. I want you to pray abundance. I want you to pray contentment. And so, Lord, we thank you for the single people in our community that remind us that we're not half a person, that we're whole people, fully loved by you and fully welcomed into this communion. Lord, would you give married people the words to speak over single people that brings us to life, that reminds us of the giftedness of this season so that we might learn to love ourselves better, that we might learn how to love other people more wholly, and that we might love you more devotedly. So Marys, I invite you to pray aloud over single people.
We're going to continue on in worship, and I'm going to invite some of our elders and some of our uh, team leads to kind of go to the side. And if you feel like God's stirring something up within you, that you need to let go of something that you've been carrying for a long time, that you need hope, um, that you need a word from the Lord, whatever it is, these people are here and ready and willing to pray for you. They are singled, they are married, they are everything in between, and they're here uh, for you. Uh, but as we worship the Lord, I want you to be open to the fact that the Holy Spirit moves freely through us. Um, and sometimes he does things in the background that we're not even aware of. And I think that's the power of worship is that we, our, our spirits, our souls are opened up to the work of the Holy Spirit to do things that we're not even like looking for. Um, and I want to challenge you with that as we worship. So let me pray and you can move uh, to go and receive prayer if you, if you want to continue on in that or even continue to pray for the people that are next to you. So again, Lord, um, we thank you that for this vision of Christ and his church. May everything we are be about Jesus. May we be so single-mindedly focused on embodying the spirit of Jesus, of capturing the vision of Jesus, of living the abundant life of Jesus, that when we get to the end of our days, when we become worm food, we are content. We are happy with the life that you've given us because it has been filled with such purpose to learn how to love and how to be loved. And so, Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move in and through us in this moment. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.